This is an effort to try to get at some of the insights that we get from University of Michigan faculty on what are the most interesting, intriguing, promising, uh, weird innovations uh, on green energy that, that you find make you optimistic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Impact Studios podcast series here at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. I'm your host, Jerry Davis, faculty director of the Impact Studio, where we harness design and business acumen to create equitable, sustainable solutions for organizations. Creating a business today requires a radically different set of activities than it did even 10 years ago. The folks that we have on the call include Margaret Woolridge. She's the director of the new Institute for Energy Solutions. Andre Bowman from Mechanical Engineering. Michael Craig from Seas uh, and Industrial and Operations Engineering. Neil Dasgupta from Mechanical Engineering and Materials Science. And Johanna Matthew from EECS. And the format is that Margaret's going to tell us a bit about her new institute. Um, this is a, a free advertising for a wonderful new initiative going on at the University of Michigan, an interdisciplinary center that I'm very excited about. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate the free advertising. And the Institute for Energy Solutions is primarily um, our primary goal. Our mission is to build community. So that's one of the key gaps that we saw. Um, at the university, and that's to build community across the different um, units and sectors within the University of Michigan with people outside organizations, industry, nonprofits, for-profits, outside the university. And specifically, we want to do that with a focus on equity and uh, access to clean energy solutions. So that's kind of our goal. We are going to launch a few initiatives. So those are initiatives that are for both um, faculty, research faculty, teaching faculty, all units, all communities, graduate students. Um, we're going to start in those communities. We don't have as much for undergraduate students in terms of initiatives just yet, but we are going to try and organize um, courses and academic opportunities like Jerry's class. Um, and because of our focus on community and underserved, um, in particular, trying to get green energy access to underserved in groups. I see challenges and opportunities with discretized or disaggregated um, energy solutions. And one of the really neat things that I've seen are kind of an old, old idea, but new again, which is recovering energy from waste heat sources. And specifically, um, when you have uh, housing, which is more dense, like apartment complexes or condominiums and townhouses, there are kind of the classic opportunities for district heating, kind of things like that. We have waste sources, but what I saw more recently, which I thought was really interesting, is um, coupling waste heat recovery from wastewater. So if you have, again, kind of concentrated um, housing, hospitals, for example, in addition, uh, dorms, again, they they have to dispose of wastewater and that wastewater generally is um, sent to treatment facilities, but it's sent to treatment facilities at temperatures where there is still some access there to heat. And so there are some neat technologies that are um, essentially heat exchangers and heat pumps that are trying to recover that waste heat in ways that is economical and viable and can kind of put that energy back into whatever the source is, so for buildings. 
So again, I think the waste heat in particular from streams that we haven't considered previously is a really interesting kind of new technology and technology development. Oh, fantastic. I had never heard that. And that's, that sounds uh, uh, really fascinating. So thank you. Sure. Thank uh, you for this time. Yeah. And uh, Neil. Great. Um, so yeah, just uh, briefly uh, share some of the thoughts of exciting technologies. Um, I work a lot in the battery space uh, and University of Michigan is very active in batteries. A lot of university level research in batteries is uh, sort of stuck making rather small, what they call coin cells, which are like watch size batteries, but we're able to make larger format pouch cells and, you know, even industrially relevant cells that could be used for automotive applications. So there's a lot of exciting things happening in the battery space. Perhaps two I'll just briefly highlight. Um, one of them is there's a lot of momentum towards fast charging. Uh, you know, the recharge time is still one of the major Achilles heels of electrification of a lot of mobility technologies. Of course, it takes on average about three to four minutes to refuel a vehicle, whereas even with aggressive, let's say, Tesla supercharging, you're looking at 30 to 40 minutes. So, you know, we need to bring that down by about a order of magnitude. But recently, um, I was part of a project funded by the Department of Energy on what they call their extreme fast charging battery um, portfolio. And it was actually quite successful. So we're able to demonstrate charging of automotive scale batteries in less than 10 minutes, uh, which we envision could really be a game changer in terms of consumer acceptance of, of electric vehicles, because it helps to reduce, A, the need for range anxiety when you know you can refuel faster, but B, actually, People are buying these huge battery packs for electric cars. You know, you want to have 300 mile range because we're used to simultaneously having large range from a gas tank and fast refueling times. But, you know, on average, we don't drive very far very often. Some people do, of course, but most consumers are just driving short distances. But they buy this large battery pack for the car because they're worried about that 3% scenario when they're going on a road trip. Um, however, what we're thinking is with fast charge technology, Perhaps people would be okay buying a 250-mile range vehicle rather than a 350-mile range vehicle, which drops the price by about $10,000 on the price of the car. Something that is maybe more like 10 years out that we're also working at, uh, sort of very actively on is solid state batteries. And so in this technology, we're replacing the liquid inside the battery with a solid material. Why would you wanna do that? There's two primary reasons. One is it can significantly improve the safety of the battery because if you've ever seen videos of batteries catching fire, the flammable material in the battery is actually the liquid electrolyte inside of the battery. That's what catches fire. So if you can replace that with a ceramic material, which is a technology that my group and Jeff Sakamoto and others at Michigan are working on, you can eliminate the key flammable component in the battery. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Our, we got a notice from the Ford Motor Company that our Mach-E will start production in March. So really excited to see those fast chargers coming down so I can get one at my house. <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Neil. Uh, Andre. Yeah. So I'm a fellow uh, Department of Mechanical Engineering faculty member. I uh, serve as director of the auto lab. So I'm sitting in the auto lab right now here on North Campus. Uh, it's a large, uh, probably the largest university engine lab in the country. Uh, and uh, we have um, many different kinds of engines running downstairs. And then there's one straight one over in Professor Wooldridge's lab in uh, the main GG Brown building. But uh, uh, my research uh, involves alternative fuels, advanced engine technology, 
in related matters related to emissions control and reducing carbon footprint. So we need to do really three things at once. We need to be rolling out renewable fuels. And so that is an opportunity that's very exciting because that's technology that's available and the production is is ramping up. There's going to be a factor of 10 increase in the amount of renewable diesel production in the U.S. from 2019 to 2024. Uh, so, But there's not enough. So we electrify, we move to renewable and low carbon fuels, and then we look at, in the future, synthetic fuels from recycled CO2 and hydrogen. Now, one of the synthetic fuels happens to be one of the other exciting areas, my favorite fuel molecule. And yes, I have a favorite fuel molecule. This is dimethyl ether. I've been fascinated by this and perhaps obsessed by it since about 1996. To date, nobody has commercialized a vehicle that will run on this, but there is now a pump out in Placentia, California that has some amount of renewable DME blended into propane, and that's being sold for propane heating, cooking, and propane vehicle application. So if we could use this in diesel engines, it's another pathway to having vehicles that look like the ones that we have now that get around some of the logistical challenges that we face today. This is a big opportunity if we can figure out how to engineer vehicles to operate on it. And if nothing else, in the meantime, a little bit of that in propane, you can have a propane auto gas vehicle with a smaller carbon footprint. Oh, fantastic. I'm feeling so much more optimistic after this. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael will be next. And Michael, uh, great to see you uh, in the flesh or flesh-ish, I guess. Yeah, so it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to go a little bit different. I'll talk a little bit about technology, but the most exciting thing to me right now in the green tech space is actual policies. We've seen a couple of great policies come into effect in the past year um, at the federal level, the Inflation Reduction Act or IRA, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law or Bill. These policies are a continuation of how we have really had federal policies around energy, which is just a subsidy approach. We're giving more and more money to different types of green tech companies. But there are a couple of reasons why I think there are some nice elements to these new policies. First of all, they have extended a lot of the payments that we have planned for green technology to allow them to continue to phase in. There's a lot of demonstration within those bills for technologies that we don't need now, but we will need in the future. Those are things like carbon capture and sequestration, which is a crucial technology to achieve deep decarbonization technologies. Those are things like direct air capture, uh, which pulls CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. And then those are things like hydrogen uh, storage, for instance, which is a long duration storage device, which means we might use hydrogen to carry energy, not between hours like we use batteries for, but between days or seasons or even years. And so we don't need hydrogen. We don't need direct air capture right now. We won't need them for the next five years, 10 years probably, but we will eventually need them if we're really going to hit some of the best climate targets that we have set for ourselves. And so it's great to see those demonstration projects getting off the ground now or soon so that we can get learning on those technologies so when we're ready to deploy them and when you all might be looking for the next phase in your uh, employment, those technologies will be ramping up and that is a great sector to participate in. Great. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate that. Uh, Johanna, you are our cleanup batter, and uh, we are sharing our uh, favorite, intriguing, uh, exciting, uh, optimistic innovations around uh, green energy, uh, broadly construed. Could be policy, could be tech. Uh, what, what, what makes you most optimistic? Um, well, my research is on the power grid, um, and I'm an electrical engineer, and so I'm trying to make sure that we can get more renewables on the grid and still have the grid work properly. And I'm most excited about 
leveraging different demand side technologies um, to help balance renewables. So that could be flexible electric loads, it could be customer sided storage, it could be just adding more controls into the um, solar power that's going on people's houses. Um, but there's a lot of really interesting challenges on how do you coordinate these resources? How do you do it in a way that doesn't bother the consumer? So you can do it in a totally non-disruptive way um, so that it doesn't really impact their life because people have heard horror stories about like the utility shutting off air conditioning on really hot days. <laughs> and we don't want that to happen, but we can do it much more cleverly where we can you know, cycle people's air conditioners in ways that they don't notice. We can um, coordinate um, energy storage so you're not just using it in your house to you know smooth out your soul your own solar production but maybe you're also leveraging it together with your neighbors um, solar and storage to um, provide some services to the power grid we need to be able to um, balance renewables we also need to manage issues like voltage issues that come about when you have lots of new things operating on power systems including a lot of electric vehicles being connected and solar being injected into parts of the grid where we never planned for it. Oh, great. This has been the Impact Studio Podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. This podcast was produced in collaboration with Glenn Bugala 